to the book of Mark, chapter 7. The rabbis are going to continue our discussion of Mark's wonderful book. Verse 1, Yeshua addresses the problem of tradition. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Yeshua. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as ceremonial washings of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Yeshua replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. All right, we'll pause there and discuss. There's a tremendous difference between a command of God and a tradition of man. A command is a divine instruction from God. A tradition is an instruction, a teaching instituted by human beings and not authorized by God himself. God's commands are binding, are obligatory. Traditions are not. Traditions could be good or bad. For example, the Passover Seder is an example of a good tradition. 
It enriches our Passover experience and teaches us more about Passover. Getting drunk on Purim, which is a Jewish tradition, is an example of a bad tradition. The danger of tradition is that it becomes more important than God's commandments. It has a way of crowding out God's commands. The focus becomes on following the teachings of men and losing sight of the commands of God. It's another way the sin of pride is manifested. It places the word of man above the word of the living God. Yeshua gave us several examples of man-made traditions. Washing hands before eating, netilat yadayim, which is still practiced by religious Jewish people to this day. Washing cups, pitchers, and kettles, promising to give money to the temple instead of using the money to help one's needy parents. Messiah pointed out that this was not a problem unique to his time. The Jewish people were already substituting man-made traditions for God's commands in the time of Isaiah some 700 years before this. Tradition is still a huge problem for religious Jewish people to this day. So much of Judaism is focused on these man-made teachings, these man-made traditions, and the true word of God is crowded out and neglected. It's also a huge problem for vast portions of the church. I'm thinking specifically of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism, like Orthodox Judaism, is just full of man-made traditions that seem to have far more importance than the pure, simple commands of God. How about us? Are we substituting any man-made traditions that cancel or crowd out the word of God? Rabbi Glenn, any thoughts? Yes. <laughs> um, and again, not all of these are bad. Not all traditions crowd out God's commandments. But, you know, we've got, you know, in modern evangelicalism, we have our own uh, traditions. How about passing around the offering plate during the service? I don't recall seeing anything in scripture about let's pass around a plate. Um, in fact, I seem to recall Yeshua saying, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So it should be done discreetly. But a lot of churches pass around offering plates. Uh, then we've got traditions. Some certain denominations have traditions, and they're fiercely adhered to. I'll give you an example. The forbidding of the drinking of wine or alcohol. Now, of course, drunkenness is bad. There's no question about that. Scripture talks about that several times. But forbidding wine, that's a tradition, and that goes beyond the word. Um, some of our liturgy, uh, even for us, there's liturgy that's tradition, not necessarily 
a command. Things like a dress code or um, separating youth from the adults and having like this whole youth program, youth pastors, they're not necessarily bad, but neither are they commands from God. Um, we try here at Shema to, the vast majority of our songs are scripture-based. And actually, we do this intentionally because we read a passage of scripture, we sing that scripture, it reinforces it. Most, a lot of the scripture I remember is because we sing it. And it goes into long-term memory. But we've got our own traditions, and I'm going to step on some toes here. Um, the celebration of Christmas, Easter, uh, Sunday services, and the times that we set our services, all are tradition. Not necessarily bad, but tradition. Good thoughts. Rabbi Jerry. So you're saying we should do a service at 11 o'clock at night? Because if so, I'm for that, because I'm a night owl. Rabbi and Lauren and Rabbi Glenn probably won't be there, but we could do that. But uh, no, I, I, think it's, I think what you said, Rabbi Glenn, is very true. Um, we tend to, there's an old saying, you tend to major in the minors. We tend to get so obsessed with minutia that we, we miss out on the big picture. The other common idiom is missing the uh, forest for the trees. And what we see here really is, I think, a redirection of focus. Uh, you see Messiah Yeshua saying, you know, what's going on inside you, your motivations is actually way more important than how clean your hands are. Um, and then the hypocrisy that's on display as well is not always, but it tends to be people get very obsessive about tradition and minutia tend to have levels of hypocrisy in their own lives that they may be either unaware of or unwilling to deal with. As Rabbi Lauren is fond of saying, things go with things. So, The parable about clean and unclean, Yeshua expounds and clarifies the place of tradition, especially clean and unclean hands, which relate to other important issues. Rabbi Jerry. Then Yeshua called the, to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Yeshua went into a house to get away from the crowd. And his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. He said, don't you understand either? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's a long sin list there. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. All right, so let's break this down. First of all, you may have noticed, if you're eagle-eyed, that we did not read verse 16. We go straight from verse 15 to 17. And that's because uh, while there is a verse 16 in some manuscripts, it's left out of most translations because it really only appears in later ones. It most likely was not in the text. 
But if you do see verse 16, it says, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And that most likely was not in the original manuscripts. All right, so this section of Mark 7 is heavily debated because of the parenthetical statement, that statement we read in parentheses. By saying this, he declared all foods clean. Now, the NLT has a slightly different translation. I'm giving you a more common one that might be in your NIV, ESV, KJV, etc. Now, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, which I do enjoy by David Stern, you'll notice that it says ritually clean for verse 19. And if you have the newer Tree of Life Messianic Bible, which I also like, it translates this verse as Yeshua's words and says, for it does not enter into the heart, but into the stomach, and then goes out into the sewer, which is the same as what we just read, but instead it just says cleansing all foods. So it leaves out that thus by this he made all foods clean. It translates it differently. So we're going to dive into this hopefully in about four minutes and, and deal with this whole issue. And uh, hopefully Rabbi Lauren won't cut me off too quickly. So first, I believe grammatically and narratively, the NLT here is correct. The way we read it in the NLT is correct. But this introduces the question of what this parable is about. Now, the traditional view is that this statement has Messiah Yeshua declaring all foods, sheep, goats, pigs, clean, fit for eating. We know from kosher laws that pigs would have been considered unclean, unfit for eating. So that tends to be the traditional view about this. The traditional messianic views fall into two categories represented by those two translations. First is the idea that this isn't really about food. It's still talking about hand washing. So it's really just about the hand washing issue, about ritual cleanliness. And so that's why David H. Stern puts the word ritually in front of the word clean in his translation. Or some Messianic Jews would say it has nothing to do with ritual cleanliness at all. You really shouldn't even read it that way. And you get to the tree of life version. It just means cleansing all foods. It's a little awkward, but it has nothing to do with any of this stuff. Let's just ignore it and move on. I'm going to tell you right now, I disagree with both of those. Now, what is 100% clear, and when we were talking about this week, Rabbi Glenn especially was like, we really need to mention this, is what is 100% clear is that Messiah Yeshua is again redirecting our focus from outward acts to how we are deep inside. That was a long sin list, and it may have made you a little uncomfortable in your seats as you went through that list, and it should, because those are things within our fallen nature. Once again, we see the hypocrisy of human beings on display. We spend so much time worrying about things like food and neglecting the condition of our hearts. These things defile us much more than what's the food we're eating or our hands themselves. So that's 100% clear. Now, what else is this section telling us and how are we supposed to understand verse 19? So I had one opinion earlier this week, but it changed later this week. I spent several hours researching this, and I had my opinion changed from a specific dissertation on cleansing the common narrative intertextual study of Mark 7, 1 through 23 by Ike Aaron Mueller. You can Google that if you want to. I just got to give credit where credit's due. And I read about 125 pages of it. And if you want to talk to me about it a little bit more than this, you can afterwards. But here's the point that matters. If verse 19 and this section 
are all about foods being kosher, the traditional view, we have a very serious problem because Acts 15 makes it very clear that meat polluted by idols or that meat that has been strangled is not fit to eat. So if we read this just as, oh, Messiah Yeshua is saying all foods are on the table for dinner, what about Acts 15? It would mean that Messiah Yeshua is contradicting Scripture, which can't happen. So that tells us the traditional view is kind of out the door just for that reason. Now, what do I think it means? I think I agree with this dissertation. And that argument is that the key to understanding this entire section of Mark, verses 1 through 23, and especially this section, is the word that's being translated as defiled here in this passage and throughout this entire chapter. It actually shows up in verses 2 and 5 as well, but the NLT doesn't use it. In the Greek, it is kinos or kino, which is an uncommon word. It's a rare word that relates not to unkosher foods like a pig, but to what something's called touch-based defilements, which we've been talking about in the beginning of this chapter. The Pharisees and many first century Jewish people believed a person could become ritually unclean beyond actions like touching a dead body, which we read about in Leviticus. As we saw earlier in this chapter, if you did not wash your hands correctly, you were defiled, and so was what you were eating. This supposed defilement also extended to kosher meat that was in contact with unkosher meat. Think of a steak next to a piece of bacon. Messiah Yeshua in Mark's commentary through the Holy Spirit here makes it clear that all foods are considered clean whether or not they have come into contact with something unclean. Now you may ask, rightly so, why does it matter? Why do we care about a steak next to a piece of bacon, Rabbi Jerry? It's because this type of touch-based defilement was used to justify Jewish people not interacting with Gentiles, a practice within the Orthodox community that continues to this day. In Acts 10, the Apostle Peter must overcome his understanding that it is wrong for a Jewish person like him to go to a Gentile like Cornelius' house. We see the same word, kinos, alongside a more common Greek word for unclean when Peter, when he gets that vision from God, refuses to kill and eat. Now, we know why he would not eat unclean animals like pigs, but why wouldn't he eat the clean ones? Because there was ideally, you know, a, you know, a, a cow or a sheep in that vision. Because in this vision, they had encountered unclean animals and had become defiled. Now we go, so again, this is this issue of clean and unclean as it relates to people. I'm wrapping up. So back in Mark 7, we see the application, why this all matters. In this chapter's teaching, when Messiah Yeshua interacts with a Gentile woman with no concern about being defiled, that's in the next section. It is a lesson for all of us about the importance of spreading the good news to all people groups. So the whole point of this, just to bring it all in in 15 seconds here, is this is about food touching other food and being used to justify, you know, keeping Gentiles away from Jewish people. And again, focusing on these outward professions of faith while ignoring inwardly what's going on. All right, I'm done. Sorry, I went a long way.
I have an observation and a question. Go for it. If, I don't know if it's Acts 10 where Peter is on that housetop, but I'm going to need to go back and look because to my remembrance, it was unclean animals, not clean and it was, unclean. It was both clean and unclean animals. Does it say that? It does. Okay, I'll take your word for it. My, it second, my second thing is a question. Does that mean you're not going to eat a filet mignon wrapped in bacon? Well, so, <laughs> yes. No, I, do. I, I would eat filet mignon wrapped in bacon. I don't keep kosher. But I basically say this, this text isn't to justify this argument right. one way or the other. Right. Uh, really, m- more of a serious uh, observation is that um, here we are, a Messianic congregation made up of Jews and non-Jews together, we have differing convictions about things. Some keep kosher, some don't. Um, and yet, look at the harmony we enjoy. And it's precisely because we, we, we always fall back to the biblical standard of Romans chapter 14. It's not about food. It's not about days. It's not about festivals, right? Um, so Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 also uh, should should govern our thinking about this so that we're not judging or condemning one another on what are, in fact, secondary things. I don't believe that the traditional Christian interpretation um, is right. Thus he declared all foods clean. I don't believe that the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews, is... Speaking to Jewish people, he is under the law. He has committed himself to obeying God's law. He's speaking to Jewish people under God's law that he always encourages to obey God's law. I don't believe he is standing there and saying, all food is clean, which means um, we can annul all the dietary laws, the kosher laws in the word of God. I don't believe that that is what he is doing. I find that inconceivable, that he would be inciting rebellion <laughs> against God's law. You've got to understand he is under, you know, the, the Sinai covenant is still in effect. He's speaking as a Jewish rabbi to other Jewish people under the law. He never encouraged them to disobey God's law. So... I see the primary emphasis as about um, ritualistic traditions, cleansing, netilat, yadayim. Why don't your disciples, you know, wash their hands before eating like the rest of us have done for, you know, centuries? And he said, we don't need to. It's not a command. It's a tradition the real source of defilement is our human nature, what's in our hearts, what's at the core of who we are. That's what we have to be aware of. That's the real source of defilement, dirtiness, uncleanness. And, and truth be told, religious externalism, such as the thing Yeshua is warning against, frequently becomes oppressive the traditions become oppressive, and that's not God's way. We'll see more about this um, touch defilement in um, the Word of God. For example, um, do you remember when uh, 
Jewish religious leaders are going to Pilate, the Roman, Roman governor, because they want Yeshua executed. And it's right before Passover. They're asking him for a favor. They go to his you know, palace, but they refuse to go inside his house. And they ask him, the governor, to come out of his house to them. Why? Because we're told by John, who, John chapter 18, that they believe that they would be defiled if they went into a Gentile's house. This idea of Jewish people, the chosen people who are separate from the other nations, um, touching a Gentile, having a contact with a Gentile, uh, going into the home of a Gentile was enough to make you unclean. Well, that is not what the Word of God teaches, right? Israel was to be a light to the other nations. We were to have interaction with the other nations. And very shortly after this, God was going to unite Jews and Gentiles in one new family, one new community. And we would touch each other and be very close to each other. But to get there... Our greatest rabbi is addressing a very serious, flawed understanding of defilement and tradition as opposed to the Word of God. Uh, I was doing a little bit of uh, reading this morning, and this idea of a Gentile you know, defiling things, it's still there in Orthodox Judaism today, not among conservative Jews or Reformed Jews or, you know, more secular Jews. Uh, but if a Gentile touches wine that is like in the process of being made, like uh, you put wine in casks, if a Gentile touches the cask, uh, the wine is defiled. If you open a bottle of wine and a Gentile touches the bottle of wine, like he's your waiter at a restaurant, um, that wine is defiled. And if you're an Orthodox Jew, you're not allowed to drink that wine. So there are still these touch defilement traditions among religious Jewish people to this day. Well, that does not work in Messiah's new humanity, the one new man. And that was never what God intended, that type of extreme touch defilement, a Jewish person touching a Gentile or a Gentile touching, you know, a bottle of wine. You know, what's fascinating is there are certain times you can go to Meyer, or for that matter, Costco or whatever, uh, when it's almost empty, and that's when Orthodox Jewish people are there. Had that happen a couple times. I would go to Meyer at an off hour, typically on like a Sunday morning or something, and there would be a disproportionate number of Orthodox Jewish people there because they are attempting to avoid contact with Gentiles. As long as we're speaking of wine, you know I like wine, right? <laughs> so... Um, to get over this issue of being uh, defiled by Gentiles and wine, like say you're shipping wine you know, from Israel, they make good wine to the United States, and there's a Gentile who you know, moves the 
you know, the box of wine touches a bottle of wine. There's a tradition that if you boil the wine, not boil. Yeah, if you so boil the wine, degrees, it's got to get 180 degrees, then that changes the nature of the wine, and then a Gentile can touch this boiled wine, and then it's okay. So if you go to, like, a really kosher wedding, and they're serving wine, and maybe some of the servers are Gentiles, they use this, pre, you know, heated wine. Well, the problem is, if you take great wine with subtle flavors and you heat it, you boil it or you heat it to 180 degrees it absolutely destroys you know, the flavor, the character the taste of the wine which is why, you know, these kinds of kosher wines are, you know terrible <laughs> It is Rabbi Lawrence's expert opinion as a wine officiant, they are they are pretty bad <laughs> Not all kosher wines, but um, a majority a, a majority Okay. okay. All right, moving right along. Uh, wait, wait, one, one, one other thing. <laughs> Yeshua talks about the real source of defilement is the heart and all, you know, the sin list. Let's talk about that. I mean, <laughs> that is human. He's, ta- he's telling us about human nature, right? He's giving us a very clear statement on the fallenness of man. Depravity of man, the fallenness of human nature, that is the source of human defilement. That's where evil and sin, the real serious sins come from. That is true. So my question is, how do we overcome inner defilement? How do we overcome our sin nature? I've been the one talking. Okay. You go ahead, Rabbi. Okay, the answer is we have to be... (laughs) Born again, we have to have a, a new nature. This is not something that washing of hands, or a little external religion or traditions can fix. We have to go right to the heart. We have to overcome human nature. We, have, we need a transformation. Born again, new nature, filled with the Spirit of God, and the new nature that we're given at salvation, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that humanity can overcome our defilement that comes deep at the core of who we are in our hearts. You must be born again. Religion won't save you. And then, once we've been transformed, we need to practice the spiritual disciplines. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to be praying We need to remain in fellowship and strengthen one another. We need to do these things uh, so that we grow stronger and not weaker. We're good? Okay. Let's let's, let's pick up at verse 24. We're going to read 24 through 30. And it's all been leading up to this, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's all been leading up to this. See, that's why I chose this section, because I get the best part. Okay. Verse 24, then Yeshua left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. 
She, since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Yeshua told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. <clears throat> A little bit about Tyre. Tyre uh, is about 40 miles north and west of Capernaum, Yeshua's base of operations. And Sidon is even a little further, more like 56 to 60 miles north. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities, but at this point, they are under the jurisdiction of Syria. Syria had jurisdiction at this time. Tyre means rock, because um, offshore from the city of Tyre, there were these two enormous rock formations, uh, and they were joined by a natural breakwater. And so Tyre was one of the, I don't know if it, necessarily the seven wonders of the world, but it had an amazing natural harbor and a built-in defensive wall. So it was renowned in that way. Now, there may have been a few Jewish people living in that area, but just know that Tyre was not part of first century Israel. Um, now, though Joshua, back in Joshua chapter 19, had designated the region of Tyre and Sidon to be allocated to the tribe of, De uh, of Asher, at this point, Yeshua, is, and you have to know this, he is in Gentile regions. He's outside of Israel. And this is, again, his repudiation of the rabbinic traditions, since religious Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles, let alone go out of their way to spend time among them. Why did Messiah, who on another occasion said, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, go out of his way to visit these Gentile cities? Was it necessary, perhaps, that he just had to, he had to have some rest, a little bit of seclusion, a bit of a getaway, or perhaps was it to step away from the increasing hostility uh, from the Jewish religious community? The fact is, we're not told why he went there. Perhaps what we're witnessing here, though, is a microcosm of what will be the grand scheme. We're coming up on Passover. Think Psalm 118. The stone which the builders, Israel's Jewish leaders, rejected, right, uh, became the chief cornerstone. It opened the way. The Jewish leadership rejection of Messiah opened the way for Gentiles to become fellow partakers of the kingdom of heaven. So here, in a real sense, we have a preview of that in this one-on-one -on -one encounter with a Gentile-believing woman. Now, here's a question. Why did he not want anyone to know what house he's staying in? Again, maybe it was for the sake of seclusion and rest, which he seems not to have been able to get. 
Everywhere he goes, there's the crowd just waiting for him. Perhaps. Um, doubtless, though, his fame preceded him. Everybody, not just in Israel, but everybody was hearing about this wonder-working rabbi. Perhaps it was as simple as he didn't want the homeowners where he was staying to have to deal with this mob crowd. We don't know. Again, we're not told. In any case, he was unable to enjoy anonymity. Word got out that he was there and people are coming to him. And one of them was this Phoenician woman. Everything about this scenario is the antithesis of the Jewish religious establishment at that time. Here's a Gentile, a woman in a foreign city, yet she had more faith than most of the Jewish community with whom Yeshua interacted. And what's more, she fully understood her lower standing, that as a foreigner, she could only ask this of Yeshua. She could not demand it of him. She isn't part of Israel. But her situation was desperate, and we've seen that pattern, that people came to Yeshua and threw caution to the wind. And that's what she's doing here. She's not part of Israel, but her situation is desperate. Her daughter was cruelly demon-possessed. And then she comes to Yeshua, and initially, he seems to be rejecting her request. Why? I believe... Well, two reasons. One, I believe it was for the sake of the gathered crowd and for all mankind, even those of us reading it centuries later. You see, Messiah affirmed that the Jewish people, those entrusted with the Torah and the words of the prophets, ought to have first opportunity to welcome and obey him. Right? Yeshua said, salvation is of the Jews. It was proper that the Jewish people have first opportunity. Given, and when you think about it, given Christianity's historical disdain for the Jewish people, it was a needed lesson, sadly an unlearned lesson many times. Also, I believe this was to show us, both then and now, the tenacity of her faith. Initially, he seems to be saying, you know, I'm not supposed to take what belongs to the children and give it to the puppies here. Um, but she did not give up. She pressed in um, until she received her request. And we should learn from her example. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Until that door opens to you. There's a real important lesson there for us. But doesn't Yeshua love everyone, Jews and Gentiles, equally? Yes, of course he does. But again, there is a God-ordained sequence how this is to happen. And, and as far as the dissemination of the gospel, the good news, at that time, prior to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, the Jewish people were his focus. And that was appropriate. Later, that would broaden to include all of mankind, people from every language and nation and people group. But even now, 2,000 years later, 
the, the words of Romans chapter 1, verse 16 are still appropriate. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But he's not insulting her. I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. He is neither insulting her nor, by extension, insulting Gentiles by using the analogy of children's food being thrown to the dogs. First of all, he's not calling her a dog. It's an analogy. He's stating a priority. One's own children should eat first. Israel was, in a lesser way, God's son, child and had rightful claim on his first attention and provision. And what's interesting here, did a little Greek grammar myself, Yeshua didn't use the word kuang, dog, but rather the diminutive, the diminutive or the affectionate form kunarion, which means more like puppy, puppy dog. Um, in the ancient world, wild dogs were were regarded with contempt. This is not that. Not at all. But, you know, the woman answered him so well, even calling him Lord. She said, that's true, Lord, but even the quinarion under the table uh, is allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. And Messiah rewarded her for the tenacity of her faith and her persistence. Her request was granted, and her daughter was delivered from the demon. So now I'm going to ask a question of Rabbis Lauren and Jerry. In this, is this principle, Romans 1.16, still in effect, and what does this encounter tell us about Israel and the other nations and the relationships? Yep. You want me to answer it? All right. I think it, it, do, it does show it's still in effect that God has a priority, you know, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. You know, people have twisted that and tried to take it from a non-literal basic sense, but, you know, in, in a somewhere ecumenical kind of way. But it is true is God has a heart for the Jewish people. He has a heart for all people, but he chose the Jewish people to give scripture to and God chooses today still as well who is in his community and who isn't. And that's his right as sovereign Lord, as the master of the home, we would say. Rabbi Lauren? Nothing to add. Okay. Let's talk about this exorcism, although briefly I see our time uh, is running short. Normally in an exorcism you have an encounter between the one casting out the demon and the person who is inhabited or possessed by that demon. That's not what happens here. Um, and I believe this teaches us something about Yeshua's authority, his authority. He didn't need to be present in order to take authority over that demon. In the same way that, for example, in John chapter 4, he healed the uh, daughter of the uh, royal official from a distance, or excuse me, the royal official's son at a distance, simply with a word. Uh, likewise, the synagogue official's daughter in uh, Mark chapter 5, and the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8. These are a couple of examples where Yeshua doesn't have to be present. He only needs to speak a word, and he has the authority 
uh, to do this. And here, this woman's daughter is set free uh, from that demon. So uh, I want to wrap it up with this. I'd like to get both of your thoughts. Why did Mark include this incident? Let's start with Rabbi Lauren. Uh, because I think this whole, it's setting us up for the one new man. Yes, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, went to his own people first, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, we did not have a proper understanding of what God wanted us to do, you know, his future salvation of the Gentiles. A Jewish tradition had separated us too much from Gentiles um, our greatest rabbi, our king, is teaching us that something is about to radically change with his coming and his arrival, his death and resurrection between Jews and Gentiles. One new man, he has a heart for the Gentiles, and um, we, we need to as well. I agree. I think it's, you know, again, it's this, it's giving us a taste of what's to come with the, with the gospel message being set forth. And what's interesting is, you know, we have these religious Pharisee leaders who don't understand these things. We have the disciples who have been at this point hanging out with Rabbi Yeshua for quite a while who don't understand these things. And here we have a Gentile, a woman coming up to Yeshua who knows more about who God is than these Jewish people who have been traveling with him. And he, and she is able to immediately understand his riddle, his, his teaching here and correctly respond the way what he was leading her to do. And she's rewarded for this. She's smarter than the disciples at this point in terms of her understanding and knowledge of who God is. And I think that's intentional as well of, you know, who God chooses and, and how we understand things, that there's the, a simplicity that lets you understand. I would uh, add one final thought to this. And you've heard Rabbi Lauren, Rabbi Jerry, and myself talk about this at times. This is one of the reasons we consider it unconscionable that uh, Messianic congregations anywhere would try to exclude or marginalize Gentile participation. God has really designed this gospel to create one new man. And to the extent that anybody would try to continue that separation is an offense against a holy God. Humanity is like the daughter of this Phoenician woman. I find it remarkable that this girl was demon-possessed when she was young. She probably was not a great sinner, right? <laughs> she's like a relatively young girl, and she's demon-possessed. We're going to read a little bit later in Mark that a man brings his son to Yeshua who's demon-possessed from a very young age. Humanity truly is under the domination, the control the dominion of darkness, the fallen angels, evil spirits, demons. They are real. Satan is the god of this world. Humanity is under their control. Sometimes it gets more extreme demon possession. It can even happen to a, a child. That tells us something about the nature of humanity and the human condition. Yeshua is the only one that can deliver us from the kingdom of darkness.
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry, Rabbi Glenn.